the village is sleeping There's only one light Do you know where you are? Stepping through the doorway What a sign, it is creaking We see your lost soul With our wandering eye There's only Darkness is creeping There's only one light And a chill in the air We promise you stories For one night only Come closer toward us Lend us your ear if you Hello there. Welcome to the Wandering Eye. What can I help you with today? Oh yeah, come on over to the desk. Ooh, what's in the bag? If you've got something to sell, I'm more than happy to take a look. Ooh, you've got that well wrapped. Hope it's not too dangerous. I was joking, but from the look on your face, I might have hit the mark. It's not going to bite me, is it? No? Well, that's a relief. We used to have a whole section in here for poisonous animals, but, uh, well, there's a reason we don't have an assistant anymore. That's certainly not going to bite me. Not now, anyway. I don't suppose they've bitten anyone in a long time. Just to check, you do know it's not strictly legal to sell human remains, right? I'm going to need to know a bit more before I consider taking this skull off your hands. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, let me make sure I've got this right. Your dad was a prop designer on film sets back in the 80s. And things started to go wrong on set after he put this in the back of one of the scenes. Actors getting injured, stuff going missing, weird voices whispering in audio and strange shadows that seem to move on their own. Well, you've got my interest, but why do you want to get rid of it? Surely those are all just stupid rumours. Unless you've been finding mysterious scratches on your skin and things have been going missing. Shadows following you around the house. Sure sounds like a curse to me. I think it's best that I do take it off your hands, actually. I won't be able to give you anything for it. Like I said, the sale of human remains is illegal. We sell a lot of odd things here, sure, but we like to keep things above board. Mostly. What we do offer is a safe place for this skull so that no one else can be hurt by it. In fact, bear with me a moment. The quicker we have it shut away, the better, I think. Uh, I, I should have something down here. Mm. Ah, yes. Here we are. 
See the carvings on the outside? They're sigils, protective ones. Once your cursed skull is popped inside, I'll take it down to the basement. We've got a storeroom at the back just for items such as these. Some things are just too dangerous to go on the shelves. There we go. Doesn't that feel better? Just in time too. Those shadows from the fireplace were just starting to creep across the walls. I mean, it could have been the mice, but always best to be careful. You do seem quite anxious though. Tell you what, why don't you wait here and I'll pop back up and let you know once the box is secured downstairs. Maybe you'll breathe a little easier once it's all done with. Why not have a browse while you're waiting? And do watch your feet. The mice really don't like being stood on. Besides, the cat says they taste worse when they're irate. Anyway, back in a mo. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to startle you. Are you waiting for Meg? I saw her on her way down to the basement. A cursed skull, huh? Exciting. It almost feels cliche that it's from a film set though, right? Don't suppose you have any idea whose head it originally came from? No? That's a shame. Sometimes if we can reunite an object, or skull, that's been wronged, or in this case, separated from its owner, then the curse can be lifted that way. Although it would involve digging up a grave most likely, something that's uh, frowned upon by most. It's not the first time I've heard of objects causing strange happenings on film sets though, you know. On the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they used real animal bones on set. Due to the heat of the day and under the heavy studio lights, they started to smell so bad an on-set medic had to start treating people for nausea and upset stomachs. It only got worse when, after a misguided delivery of animal remains from the pound was set alight in order to try and get rid of them, rather than the bodies simply crumbling away to ashes, the cast and crew had to contend with thick, acrid smoke and the stench of burnt hair and flesh. If you've never smelt burning hair, I wouldn't recommend it. It's a pretty distinctive smell. Probably best known for the use of real props is the 1982 horror classic Poltergeist. In a scene towards the end of the film, the protagonist Diane Freeling, played by Jo Beth Williams, slips into a, a muddy pit that's been dug in order to create a swimming pool. Unbeknownst to the character, Awaiting her are the skeletons of previous owners of the house, dislodged from the mud by the lashing rain. What Williams herself couldn't have known at the time, as she was surrounded by the open, gaping moors and empty eye sockets of what seemed to be half-mummified skeletons, is that those bones were not, in fact, rubber replicas created by the film prop department, but real human remains. Although representatives of the film have come out and said that they can't confirm the claims, Jo Beth Williams, 
has spoken out multiple times to verify that the bones used were indeed real. According to Bruce Casson, the film's assistant prop manager, he said the skeletons came from Carolina Biological, a biological supply company that these days seems to provide only replica models of the human anatomy, rather than the real thing. Casson goes on to say replica skeletons did not exist, as far as I remember at that time. They're now common and relatively cheap. Though bizarrely, there is no one named Casson mentioned on either the film's IMDb page or in the credits. More believably, Craig Reardon, a special effects makeup artist on Poltergeist, is supposedly the one to have brought the real skeletons onto the set and holds himself responsible for the resulting curse, which is rumoured to be behind deaths and accidents associated with the production. Over the course of the trilogy, the tragic deaths of four actors involved in the franchise led those involved to believe that something unnatural, or supernatural, was taking place. The first to die was Dominique Dunn. Less than a year after starring in her breakout movie performance as the Freelies' eldest daughter Dana in the first Poltergeist, Dunn was murdered by her then ex-boyfriend, LA chef John Sweeney. In an altercation outside of her home, Sweeney, who had openly displayed abusive tendencies throughout their relationship, strangled Dunn into unconsciousness. Dunn was hospitalised but never regained consciousness and died tragically five days later. When police were called to the property, Sweeney admitted to trying to kill her and after her death was originally charged with first-degree murder. However, after changing his plea to not guilty and telling the court he couldn't even remember what happened during the fight, his charges were dropped to manslaughter and he served only three and a half years. He openly terrorised and beat Dunn for years and then all but got away with her murder. In an interview with Vanity Fair about the trial of his daughter's murder, photographer Dominic Dunn describes Dominique as being at ease in a sophisticated world without being sophisticated herself. And that she was a collector of stray animals and that one day she decided to become an actress and the next week she was on a back lot making a movie. In the end, it wasn't a cursed film that killed her. Despite domestic abuse being made illegal in the United States in 1920, the American judicial system failed Dominic Dunn, and her murder went mostly unpunished. The Dunn family lost a beloved sister and daughter, and Hollywood mourned the death of a rising star. Most importantly, Dominique lost her life and her future to an abuser who should have spent the remainder of his life behind bars. The second death to be associated with the Poltergeist franchise was that of Julian Beck, who played preacher Henry Kane, whose crazed spirit is set on haunting the family's youngest daughter Caroline in the second instalment. Beck passed away of stomach cancer in 1985, the year before the sequel's release. He's best remembered for his work in theatre and was posthumously inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. Third on the list is Will Sampson, who died in June of 1987. Sampson played alongside Beck in Poltergeist 2 as Taylor, 
a Native American shaman who uncovers the malevolent spirit's identity to be that of Reverend Henry Kane. Taylor acts as something of a guide for the terrified Freely family throughout the film, enabling them to eventually defeat the evil spirit. Sadly, Samson suffered from a chronic degenerative disease that affected his heart, lungs and skin. He lost huge amounts of weight and eventually succumbed to complications after a heart and lung transplant. Jack Nicholson, who Samson starred alongside in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, issued a statement at the time saying he would miss a great friend. Lastly is the traumatic and premature death of Heather O'Rourke, the actress who portrayed Carol Ann freely over the course of all three films in the original Poltergeist trilogy. According to an article published after her death in 1988, O'Rourke passed away suddenly from a condition which should have resulted in lifelong symptoms of gastrointestinal difficulties. However, O'Rourke never reported any digestive problems. It was widely acknowledged that the circumstances of her death were highly unusual, and that by the time they got her to the operating table, there wasn't much they could do to save her. The then only 12-year-old actress died in the operating theatre. Like her co-star Dominique Dunn, O'Rourke was buried at the Westwood Village Mortuary in Los Angeles. Whether you believe in cursed skeletons or not, each of these deaths was a tragic blow to cast and crew of the Poltergeist films. Sometimes it's easier to believe in something supernatural than accept that terrible things happen, whether it's through the actions of others, the nature of disease, or surprising and unprecedented complications, the cruelties of life can be hard to make sense of. It speaks to our fear of the dead as well, the idea that if we disrespect them we'll be forced to pay the price. Most of us like to think that we're not superstitious, but I wonder how many people avoid stepping on cracks and under ladders. Some things just get under our skin. Beliefs that, if asked, we couldn't say where we've picked them up from, but have us feeling the hairs on our necks raise and throwing salt over our shoulders all the same. But maybe there is something dark at work behind the scenes influencing our lives. I guess we'll never know. I suppose I've talked your ear off, haven't I? Ah well. I'll leave you to browse then. Give me a shout if you need anything, yeah? Hello? Oh, there you are. Couldn't see you over that stack of cauldrons. I've got that skull taken care of, don't worry. Shouldn't be giving you any more grief. Still, could have been worse. Not everyone gets away so lightly from keeping an object like that around. Ah, Jasper was telling you about that, was he? Yeah. He's not convinced on the whole curse thing, but it does interest him. Me? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe the set of poltergeist wasn't cursed, but there are plenty of other instances if you're looking for more proof. The Omen, for instance. Famous for playing on that fear of creepy kids that so many of us harbour. Was said to have been cursed right from the start. 
Before production even started, Gregory Peck, who starred as Robert Thorne, Damien's unfortunate adoptive father, lost his own son to suicide. Jonathan Peck was 30 years old when he took his own life. Tall, handsome and successful, a pleasant TV station worker, he left no note and gave no warning. Soon after this, several cast and crew members, Peck included, found themselves on planes that were struck by lightning. And it's even reported that after cancelling one flight, Peck later found out that that same plane he was meant to be on had crashed and everyone on board killed. Just a little bit far on destination. And all of this was before filming had even started. Director Richard Donner ended up staying in a hotel that was bombed by the IRA and was later hit by a car. Amazingly, he survived both of these. Perhaps the strangest and most gruesome thing to happen in connection with the curse of the omen was the death of special effects artist John Richardson's wife, Liz Moore, who was killed in a car accident after the film wrapped. It's said that the crash eerily echoed a particularly infamous scene in The Omen, where a character is decapitated. A scene which Richardson himself had helped to create. You see, after the crash, Liz Moore's head was found severed from her body. As if to add fuel to the fire, the film was even officially denounced by the Vatican. One can only think that for a film about the spawn of Satan, this would only help increase the film's notoriety. And of course, we can't talk about cursed film sets without mentioning The Exorcist. Released in 1973, William Friedkin's supernatural horror terrified fans around the world. According to the British Board of Film Classification, even before the film came to scare viewers in the UK, it was already provoking fainting, vomiting and heart attacks across the pond. Although put under pressure to be banned, the outrageous success of this gruesome flick couldn't be ignored. And it has, of course, gone on to define the genre and inspire a slew of equally hair-raising films. Based on the book of the same name, written by American author William Peter Blatty, The Exorcist, both film and book, are based on a true story, the exorcism of Roland Doe. Doe's story outlines an exorcism that took place in 1949 and lasted for months, although Perhaps that's a story for another time. Either way, it's worth noting that even 20 years before the film was released, there was real suffering associated with these strange events, a trend that sadly continued during filming. There are nine deaths in total associated with the filming of The Exorcist. There was a mysterious fire that burned down most of the main set of the house supposedly caused by a bird flying into a circuit box. Although Reagan's room was unaffected by the flames. Most deaths associated with the film 
either of crew members or family members of the cast, were determined to be from natural causes. Creepiest of all, though, is the potential serial murderer who worked on the film. Paul Bateson, a radiology technician who worked on the horror picture, was accused of the unsolved murders of six men. Bateson was brought on to work on The Exorcist in a scene where Reagan undergoes a medical procedure in order to try and ascertain whether her possession is a problem born more of science than religion. In order to keep filming as realistic as possible, Friedkin hired actual hospital workers to be in the film. Bateson can be assisting and talking to Reagan during the scene. During the murder trial, it's said that Bateson was on the radar as a prime suspect, partly because of his medical knowledge. You see, the bodies that police had discovered had been dismembered. The most tragic deaths of all associated with the film were those of Mercedes McCambridge's son and his family. McCambridge lent her voice to the demonic entity Pazuzu, an underworld demonic god of Assyrian origins. Shockingly, McCambridge's son, John Markle, murdered his wife and children before taking his own life. He left a note for his mother, telling her that, quote, you have never been there for me. It's said that he had recently been fired from his job and in writings found in his diary, he confessed, none of these people deserve me. I have put all of their futures in jeopardy. My relationship with my mother has been destroyed. Markle then claimed to be broke and have no inheritance for his children. It seems that the combination of shame and depression is what led him to decide that death was the only way out for all of them. It seems like right from the start, the exorcist was a stage set for tragedy. There's something fascinating, but also deeply upsetting in thinking about the horror and terror that a story inspires in those who access it, being so great that it can cross the divide between fiction and the real world. Or maybe it's like the mouse you know is living behind the skirting board. You've seen it dart across the floor, so you know it's there. But it's that knowledge of not being alone that makes you doubly attentive to the scratches and skittering of something under the bed at night. You only hope it is the mouse. Best not to think too hard about it. Sorry, <laughs> I've gone on a bit, haven't I? I suppose you'll want to leave us now we've got that all taken care of for you. Do come and give us another visit if you've got anything else you'd like to sell or get rid of. Or, uh, or if those shadows still won't stop following you around the room. I'm sure we can find something to help. Anyway, don't get lost out there. And maybe if someone asks you if you'd like to work on the set of a horror film, it might be best for your health and the health of your loved ones if you politely decline. Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host, Meg James. 
The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at WonderingEyeCurios and over on Twitter at WonderingEyePod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time. Due to the heat of the day and under the heavy studio lights, they started to smell so bad an onset medic had to start treating people for nausea and utter. Uh, <laughs>